This is Publishers Weekly Radio, the authority on all things books and publishing, with everything you need to know from your favorite books and the world in which they live to bestseller lists and publishing news. Here's the inside story on your favorite story. Publishers Weekly Radio, with your hosts, Rose Fox and Mark Rotella. Hello and welcome to Publishers Weekly Radio on the web at publishersweekly.com slash pwradio and streaming free on iHeartRadio, iTunes, and audiobookradio.net. I'm Mark Rotella, Senior Editor at Publishers Weekly. And I'm Rose Fox. I'm delighted to be back after my few weeks away. I'm a Senior Reviews Editor at Publishers Weekly, and we're bringing you the very best of book talk directly from PW's offices in New York City, the heart of the book publishing world. Great to have you back, Rose. Thank you. On today's show, author Chris Bajalian discusses his new novel, The Guest Room. Then Natasha Gilmore, PW's associate editor for children's books, looks at spring announcements for Kid Lit. But first, here's a sneak peek at next week's Publishers Weekly bestseller list, powered by a Nielsen Bookscan. You know, I've honestly missed doing this with you, Mark. It's, uh, this, is, this is this nice to have you back. It, this is this is great fun. It's really nice to, <laughs> to dive in. So um, I have no idea what's been going on on the list over the last few weeks. Uh, I've been I've been off in another world, but uh, certainly this week there's a lot moving around. Uh, I know that when I left at the end of December, uh, things had been sitting pretty still. I have to say that it's been pretty slow up until this week it's still a little slow in nonfiction, but if you've got movement in fiction yeah definitely i'm happy to hear it we have a new number one which is blue by danielle Steele. of course every danielle Steele novel goes right to the top of the bestseller list she's an industry unto herself um she does books that sort of straddle different genre lines this one is something like a thriller and um something like a family story mm-hmm. and uh, it's about a, a woman who's a tv news anchor um married to a top anchorman they have a young son, the happy life, uh, and then uh, her husband and child are killed in a car accident, and she has to figure out what to do with her life. And she goes in a totally different direction, becomes a human rights worker mm. in distant areas, and eventually befriends a 13-year-old boy who could also uh, use someone special in his life. And so together they try and find something like happiness. So this is a real heartstring tugger. Uh, Danielle Steele is renowned for those, and uh, no no surprise at all to see right. that one at number one. Oh, great. Now at number five, Karen Marie Moaning's Feverborn. This is the, the eighth fever book. Um, these have also consistently been bestsellers. Um, and this one is a, a speculative fantasy novel. Uh, we don't have a review of it yet. Um, but the marketing copy says it hurdles the reader into a realm of labyrinthine intrigue and consummate seduction, a tale of ancient evil, lust, betrayal, forgiveness, and the redemptive power mm. of love. So if that's the sort of thing that you're into, um, Moaning's very good at it. And uh, this one is just part of a, a long-running series, uh, and it's got sort of apocalyptic mm-hmm. aspects, epic fantasy aspects and a romantic thread running through it and she's also a a romance author so that's no surprise Um, so that's at number five number eight uh, another series novel bernard cornwell's ninth saxon stories um set in the the saxon era uh in england and um this is called warriors of the storm and again, it's part of a, a long on-running series. Uh, you know, you're kind of jumping into the middle of it if you mm-hmm. pick up 
this book to start with, and uh, it's probably best for readers to go back and begin at the beginning. There's a lot of battles, alliances, betrayals, and uh, in, in what's going on in this history, right. and so uh, new readers are going to be a little bit lost if right. they try to start here. But clearly, his uh, his returning readers are happy to push this one up the list. Moving down a little bit lower, at number 17 is Even Dogs in the Wild by Ian Rankin. We called this one Uneven. It's the 21st novel in the John Rebus uh, mystery series uh, about a retired cop working in Edinburgh. And uh, we say that you know, there's there's a lot of sort of dithering and backing and forthing. And when Rankin finally gets to his real narrative involving a former home for juvenile delinquents, the pace picks up considerably. But mm. mostly we say fans are going to wait for the next book and hope it's a return to form. Down at number 19 is Orphan X by Greg Hurwitz. We give this a starred review. and that Hurwitz melds nonstop action and high-tech gadgetry with an acute character study in this excellent series opener. Uh, this one's a thriller uh, about an assassin trained by the government who's now a rogue operator doing a kind of Robin Hood of Assassins thing, um, using his abilities to help those mm. in need. And uh, as payment, each of his clients refers him to another innocent person in trouble, kind of pay it forward right. sort of thing. And uh, movie rights have just been sold to Warner Brothers, so keep an eye out for this one. It's moving fast. Oh, wow, great. Um, at number 28, um, this is a really interesting collaboration, not a thing you often see in uh, historical fiction, but three different authors combine their powers to write one novel. Um, it's not a collection of stories. Mm -hmm. It's um, a real collaborative novel by Karen White, Beatrice Williams, Lauren Willig, all of whom very well respected in their own right in the sort of... Um, romantic historical novel genre as opposed to the historical romance genre mm -hmm. um, more of an emphasis on history and on some family drama and uh, but still with that romantic thread right. running through it um, this one's set in 1945 and uh, about uh, a young woman who's a doctor uh, which is still quite unusual in that in that time and a particular patient who's surrounded by mystery and grabs her attention and there's uh, some flashbacks as well to the Gilded Age, the Jazz Age, and uh, it's it's a very interesting blend of historical threads that really makes use of all of the authors' different talents and mm -hmm. different areas of specialty. So this one's, I think, it's a very interesting project, and um, I'll be interested to see where that goes. Oh, wonderful! And uh, that's the big stuff that we've got on our list. How about on nonfiction? Well, I only have four new-ish books for debuts here. We're still going on with, in kinds of self-help, uh, better eating, mm -hmm. and we're seeing uh, more and more financial help. And this is with, uh, this is by Damon John, uh, The Power of Broke, How Empty Pockets, a Tight Budget, and a Hunger for Success Can Become Your Greatest Competitive Advantage. So in this book, Damon John talks about how you can f go from broke to really putting your assets together and, and, and balancing your budget or at least 
creating a budget to, mm-hmm. to balance. So, and that's at number four. At number eight, we have a bestselling author, Bill Bryson, who uh, in this book, The Road to Little Dribbling, An Adventures of an American in Britain. Uh, he returns to, it's kind of a follow-up to his bestselling book, Notes from a Small Island, which was published in 1996. And he returns to uh, Dorset, which is a coastal city that he described. And he realized that things have been relatively unchanged. Most things, but others have changed for better or for worse. We say his wry observations and self-deprecating humor keep him from coming off as a bitter cynic. And his lyrical way of, with words keeps the pages turning. I so. loved his first book. It was the the earlier book about his, his adventures oh, in right. England. Um, and I'm very interested to see the sequel. Oh, great. Yeah, he's, well, he's I have this writer. on my desk, so oh, well, that's then all yours. I'll swing by. Great. Then we have at number 10, Dark Money, The Hidden History of the Billionaires Behind the Rise of the Radical Right. This is by Jane Meyer. We don't have a review of this, but we say the book poses the question, why is America living in an age of profound economic inequality. And here, uh, Jane Marr goes in to describe exactly what what is going on. So that's at number 10 uh, for people who want to know why and how this has happened. And then at number 19, Robert M. Gates, A Passion for Leadership, Lessons on Change and Reform from 50 Years in Public Service. Gates, who wrote a book called Duty, is a former U.S. Secretary of Defense, takes a powerful and pragmatic look at leadership in this book. A must-read for anyone who wants to be an agent of change within an organization. We say in our review, the practical no-nonsense look at leadership will not only provide a useful guide, but also serve as an inspiration for young people interested in entering public service. It would be nice if there were young people interested in entering public service. Um, right. I, that's that's not a trend you hear a lot. No, about, no, no. You don't, exactly. you don't roam the halls of high schools and people go, oh, I really I, want to be a politician. Right, exactly. Um, but uh, if, if it can inspire young people to do that, then all the better. There you go. I'm Mark Rotella. And I'm Rose Fox, and this is Publishers Weekly Radio. Next up, Chris Bajalian tells us about his dramatic new novel of murder and sexual slavery. We'll be right back. Hi, I'm Jay Kenji Lopez-Alt. I'm the author of The Food Lab, Better Home Cooking Through Science, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio, direct from the PW offices in New York City. Today we've got Chris Bojalian on the line. His new book is The Guest Room. Hi, Chris. I'm so glad you could join us. Well, it's a pleasure to be on the show. Thanks for having me on. So you've you've written a great many novels. This is your latest, and uh, its main character is a man named Richard Chapman who hosts a bachelor party where things rapidly go awry. So tell us a little bit um, just about the book. Give us an overview for our listeners who haven't had a chance to read it yet. Sure. I actually think Richard is but one of three co-stars who I like to give equal billing to. It's the story of an American couple living in a suburb of New York City called Bronxville, very Tony place. He's an investment banker down on Wall Street. She's a history teacher. They have what I hope is an adorable nine-year-old daughter. The third main character, an Armenian girl named Alexandra, or more precisely, renamed Alexandra by Russian sex traffickers. Richard and his wife, Kristen, agree, what the heck, they might as well host Richard's idiot younger brother's bachelor party at their home in Westchester. Kristen goes into the city with their young daughter. And Richard's idiot younger brother's friends don't merely bring a stripper out to Bronxville, Westchester. 
they bring what they believe are two escorts who turn out to be sex slaves, Armenian girls trafficked to New York City by way of Moscow, who choose that bachelor party to kill their Russian captors and escape into Times Square. So if you are Richard, how do you explain to your wife, honey, don't come home tonight. The house is a crime scene and there are two dead Russians in the living room. Oh, by the way, I was upstairs in the guest room with one of the girls. Mm. How do you explain that to your nine-year-old daughter? How do you explain that to your bosses on Wall Street on Monday morning when you're on the front page of the New York Post? The next 300 or so pages chronicle how his life spirals into nightmare, but it is nothing compared to poor Alexandra, who's now on the run from the police, Russian gangsters who she knows will kill her with neither identity, passport, or, um, or credit cards. My wife, when she read the book, she christened it Breaking Bad Meets the Bonfire of the Vanities, oh. which I thought was really, really apt. Wow, your, your wife should go into book publicity. That, that's your elevator pitch right there. Well, she's had to read a lot of my books over the years, the good ones and the bad ones. <laughs> so, so now we know what the, the, the guest room of the title is, uh, where, where this, <laughs> this event took place. Um, later, I mean, and as you mentioned, Chapman's life really gets turned upside down. But along the way, um, Alexandria re-enters his life. Indeed, Alexandra does at one point in the novel, re-enter Richard's life. He seems to be one of the only men she's met in her five years of captivity who is something that just might resemble a moral compass. In some ways, while that particular reunion of sorts appears pretty far into the novel, it might in some way be the moral centerpiece. And many of your novels do have moral center pieces. I mean, you talk about political issues such as uh, uh, animal rights or, or ending homelessness. And our review of your, of your book, we say, uh, we say juxtaposed against the upper class setting is Alexandra's own account of being sold into slavery, which deserves a book of its own. What made you choose this particular um, topic? Back in 2013, my wife and my daughter and I were back in Yerevan, Armenia. I'm part Armenian. And on this journey, we had brought with us a friend of our daughter's, who at the time, like our daughter, was 19, part Armenian, but had never been there. She was going home a day before my family, and she was on a 6 a.m. flight to Moscow. And because I'm a dad, I said, okay, meet me in the hotel lobby at 3.30 in the morning so I can bring you to the airport get you checked in, get you as far security. And because I'm a dad, I was actually downstairs in the lobby at 10 after 3. And as I was waiting for my daughter's friend, I saw another young woman, younger than my daughter by at least a year, maybe two, maybe three. And she was clearly an escort, and she was paying off the bellman to go upstairs and go back to work. Obviously, we've all seen escorts in hotel lobbies in San Francisco or New York or Chicago, but this was heartbreaking for me because she was so young and because this was Armenia, and I began to wonder, is there a story in a young girl such as this, and if there is, what is it? And when you research prostitution in the Middle East and the Caucasus, you are but a razor-thin line from researching human trafficking. And so, as a matter of fact, the book is, is dedicated to my wife and my daughter 
um, and for the girl in the lobby who was paying the bellman at 3 a.m. Mm. So it sounds like you had to do um, quite a bit of research into this. Uh, what form did that research take? This isn't the sort of topic that you can just go into the library and uh, ask the librarians, tell me something about you know, sex trafficking in Armenia. First of all, I think readers sometimes overestimate the amount of research that go into my books. I'm always so flattered that the books feel that authentic. And the fact is, I want to make sure my books are authentic, so I do my homework. But the reality is, I do not view the guest room as a treatise on human trafficking. If you want to read about human trafficking, I would definitely instead dive into Siddharth Kata's book, Sex Trafficking, Inside the Business of Modern Slavery. Siddharth Kata teaches at Harvard, and his book is a monumentally researched exploration of sexual slavery. The guest room, I hope it's a literary thriller about two remarkable women, a marriage in crisis, and that one moment you wish more than anything you could take back. Yes, I know the human trafficking scenes are haunting. I hope they're authentic. But more than that, I hope I've written a book that keeps readers up until 1.30 in the morning playing that just one more chapter game because they are so emotionally invested in Kristen and Richard and Alexandra. So tell us a little bit more about Alexandra herself as a person. She is an Armenian girl. She is born and raised in Yerevan. When she is 14 and her mother dies, um, she, her father died much younger, she is the perfect prey for human traffickers. Um, she is abducted. She is brought to Moscow, where she is essentially enslaved for four and a half years. And when she's about 19, she's viewed as sufficiently Stockholm syndromed to be brought to New York to be a particular high-end escort, still enslaved, but now worth a great deal of money. You know, the, the irony of human trafficking and sexual slavery is this. When we think of it, we always think first of places like Thailand and the Philippines. When did it become a more Western phenomenon? In 1990. The Berlin Wall falls, mm. and all of the Soviet republics and the satellite nations are thrown into economic disrepair. And who is the bottom of the economic totem pole always? Women and girls. Um, there are probably somewhere in the neighborhood of 1.2 to 1.4 million young women and girls and boys trafficked across international borders as sex slaves. In a place like Italy, almost all the sex slaves are Moldovan and Romanian. For Armenian girls, here is the cruelest irony of all. They are likely to be trafficked, first of all, to Moscow, secondly, to Dubai, and third, and this is just, just crazy horrible, Istanbul. Wow. And why those three places? That's where the gangs are. That's where the borders are easiest. There are um, communities that desire that particular look. There are police forces and agencies that have been paid off. So you mentioned that Richard is in some ways um, the, one of the few men that Alexandra's met who's got a moral compass. This is not the typical portrayal these days of a guy who works on Wall Street. So why did you choose <laughs> that <laughs> particular juxtaposition? Yeah, no, Sir Richard Chapman is head of mergers and acquisitions at a pretty Tony fictional firm downtown. Why is he not one of the wolves of Wall Street? Right. It, yeah, there is a certain acknowledgement that 
he and his wife Kristen were pretty good partiers when they were when they were younger. But he is first and foremost a family guy. And you know, all of my men have got a lot of autobiographic minutia in them. The thing that was so interesting to me about a character like Richard is I hope he is a pretty decent guy most of the time, is that creepy male herd mentality that you see most prevalent at strip clubs. Mm. Men will do things in a group that I don't think some of them would do alone. I mean, this bachelor party that is, you know, I, I gave you chapter one when I, I gave you the summary. It's, it's way weirder than that. Chapter one is just an indication of how badly men in herds can behave. And I've witnessed it, and it's just so degrading. It's so, I'm so disappointed always in my gender. Um, so, yeah, I wanted Richard to be the kind of guy that is, on the one hand, very, very relatable, the kind of guy that you can see sitting on the Metro North train into the city, the kind of guy you can see at lunch in a nice restaurant in New York City behaving well, but then you put these guys in a bachelor party with a couple of um, hot young women, and all hell breaks loose. Right. And uh, are, are you thinking readers might see themselves in this and maybe take a bit of a, a cautionary tale away from it? I love it when readers see themselves in my books, but I also really worry because horrible things happen to characters <laughs> in my books, and I would never want to wish that on my readers. But, yeah, the thing that I've just loved in the, the couple of weeks since the book has been out is how many women and men have told me that they could identify with either Kristen or Richard and how they could forgive Richard or they could not forgive Richard or how... Kristen really overreacted to this bachelor party, or, wow, is Kristen forgiving and sweet? I have loved watching that debate unfold. And even more than that, I've just loved the way so many readers have taken poor Alexandra under, under their skin, because she, she really is, as one of the reviews said, the, the beating, throbbing heart of this novel. You had mentioned Richards uh, and his wife's uh, daughter. How old is the daughter? And tell us a little bit about her, what her, her uh, uh, role in, in your novel. Melissa's nine. And Melissa certainly based a lot on my daughter Grace's experience when my daughter was that age. My daughter is now 22 and, and a young actor. As a matter of fact, one of the, her most recent things was she actually read Alexandra for the Penguin Random House audiobook. Mm. I promise you, I stayed really far away from the studio when my daughter was reading the story of the sex life. I'm sure. Right. Um, but the thing about Melissa's importance, and I, I don't think it takes an English major to deduce this, is she is a juxtaposition to Alexandra. And I chose the age nine really carefully because it's an age where, especially in 2016, you are pretty savvy about sex, but not quite as savvy as you think you are. She's just young enough that even though she has outgrown her Barbie dolls, they are still in a big tucker tote in her bedroom because she's not quite ready to bring them up to the attic once and for all or say to mom and dad, you know, sell them at a yard sale or on eBay. And that is really important because there's so... Alexandra talks a lot about her childhood. And the comparisons, you know, the two girls, Alexandra and Melissa, 
both had huge Barbie doll faces. Both were are really desirous of being dancers, though for Alexandra that ship has tragically sailed. Mm. Um, and they both have relationships or had relationships with their mothers that were so precious to them. And you mentioned um, Alexandra being orphaned, so it sounds like there's a contrast there, too, between Melissa having these, you know, somewhat flawed but really loving parents and Alexandra having just herself. Yep, and actually, yeah, you're exactly right. One of Alex, The book is structured in alternate chapters, third-person omniscient sections from the perspective of the Americans, Richard, Kristen, Melissa, and first-person from the perspective of Alexandra. And one of Alexandra's soliloquies or monologues is about precisely that, what it must be like for Melissa to be growing up not simply in this affluence, but growing up an only daughter with um, a mom and a dad who always seemed to have her back. We're going to take a quick break, but don't go away. Book lovers everywhere love Publishers Weekly Radio, now on iHeartRadio.com. PW Radio brings you the best of books and book publishing news. PW editors Rose Fox and Mark Rotella offer lively interviews with your favorite authors and conversations with new authors you'll want to get to know. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella. Join the community of book lovers at PW Radio. Every Friday and now on demand at iHeartRadio.com. Welcome back. We're talking with Chris Bojalian, author of The Guest Room, who's been giving us the rundown on his fascinating characters and plots. So the main character, as you mentioned, Alexandra, is Armenian. And um, you also discuss Armenian genocide in your novel Sandcastle Girls. Tell us a little bit about your interest in that side of your family. The Armenian genocide is one of the cataclysmic, unpunished crimes in human history. At the start of the First World War, there were roughly two million Armenians living in the Ottoman Empire. By the end of the First World War, all but 500,000 would be dead, systematically annihilated by their own government. Three out of every four. Almost all of the Armenians today alive are descendants of that final 500,000. My own grandparents were both survivors of the Armenian Genocide. So one of the most important books I've, I've written is The Sandcastle Girls, which is a big, sweeping, epic love story set in the midst of the Armenian Genocide. No one is going to read a book called 1.5 Million Dead in the Desert, Mm -hmm. which is why I made it a love story, because heaven knows I loved Atonement, the English Patient, and Corelli's Mandolin, which were the models for the Sandcastle Girls. And The Guest Room, in some ways, is a bookend to 2012's The Sandcastle Girls. One is a part of the Armenian story in 1915, and one is a part of the Armenian story today, in 2016. While most of the novel is set in New York City and Westchester, there are scenes in in Gumri, which is a city destroyed by an earthquake in Armenia in 1988, and Yerevan, which, despite all the other problems Armenia has, remains one of the most beautiful cities in the world. And a lot of Alexandra's story is placed in that context. As Pope Francis reminded all of us in April 2015 on the centennial of the start of the Armenian Genocide, the Armenian Genocide remains a great open wound for Armenians around the world because of the denial 
that surrounds it, the failure of Turkey and some of its allies to acknowledge it. And there are different points in the novel when Alexandra is ruminating upon that. Why does she not kill herself the way her ancestors did rather than be defiled? Why is she afraid to go into the beautiful St. Vartan's Cathedral in Manhattan on 2nd Avenue? It's because she doesn't feel she's lived up to the, um, the, the moral authority of her ancestors. And I hope it breaks people's hearts because Alexandra, I feel, is one of my most heartbreaking young women, and certainly I've written a lot of them. Mm. And um, on the other side of your family, your mother is Swedish. Has that ancestry also influenced your work? It hasn't. It's not because I'm not proud to be half Swedish. It's the simple reality that um, because of my Swedish grandparents' divorce when my mother was very, very young, she was really embraced by this Armenian family into which she married, mm. and she became seriously armo by choice, for <laughs> lack of a, a better term. Now, that doesn't mean that, that Sweden doesn't figure in my work alone. For example, the book that I am working on right now is all about a Swedish family in Vermont. Mm. So I want to go back a little bit in time. So your breakout novel, Midwives, came out in 1997. It was your fifth novel, which was uh, you know, obviously an, an Oprah book. T tell us about your life as a writer before then and how your writing might have changed afterwards, if at all, or at least your approach to writing. First, my, I'm responsible, first of all, for the single worst first novel ever published, bar none. There is no first novel in any library anywhere as bad as a killing in the real world. You have some stiff competition. <laughs> like that. It's a high bar, but man, I nailed it with that first book. Um, the next three books were... The next three books weren't bad, but they, and they showed steady growth as a writer. Water Witches, in some ways, was my critical breakout because that was the you know, that was my first starred review in Publishers Weekly. That was my <laughs> first book that was getting really, really nice reviews and got a lot of review coverage. Um, Midwives, as a hardcover and as a paperback, did really, really well. It was my first national bestseller. And then Oprah Winfrey picked it, and it went from being a national bestseller to being and this is the greatest professional blessing of my life, a cottage industry. Did any of this change how I write? No, not at all. I, had, I wrote my first three books while employed full-time at ad agencies in New York City and Burlington. But Water Witches and Midwives, I was already a reasonably self-sufficient full-time writer, cobbling it together through books and journalism. I always started my day when I was in advertising at 5 in the morning, and I'd write till 7 in the morning, and then Monday and Tuesday nights. So by the time I was writing full-time in my early 30s, I would still start at 5 in the morning. I just wouldn't have to stop at 7 to get ready for work. And to this day, my schedule has not changed dramatically. I don't start at 5 in the morning anymore, but I try to start by 6, you know, I pop my 8.4-ounce can of sugar-free Red Bull, watch some, <laughs> watch some movie trailers to get started, and then the goal is, is to write, say, a 1,000 words by lunchtime, because as, as Jody Pico has observed, 
You can edit a bad page. You can't edit a blank page. Um, and it's, it's, it's a terrific way to start the day. So, so wait, movie trailers. Tell, tell me about that, because that, that's not a thing I think. I mean, we've talked to a lot of writers about their writing processes. No one's ever said, I start my day by watching movie trailers. And I used to start by reading poetry, just to reacquaint myself with words. You know, luminescent, mm. phantasmagoric, numinous. At some point in the last few years, it was probably, if I were to try to pinpoint when I was researching something, I started watching movie trailers. And I discovered that a movie trailer is this brilliant way to drop anyone, whether you are a viewer or a writer, into an emotional moment. Think of how much we all fell in love this autumn with a movie trailer for Brooklyn, or how excited we got by the movie trailer for The Big Short. Or, and I think this is a classic case, of a really good trailer in a less good movie, the Jennifer Aniston movie, cake. It's got this great indie rock song in it called hemiplegia, which I had to look up as a kind of nerve disorder. Um, and it's by a Brooklyn indie band. It's not even in the movie. But when you watch an emo- a, a movie trailer for two minutes, you get into an emotional place. And I always surf around movie trailers to get in the kind of place that I want to be. I know when I was writing the guest room, among the trailers, I watched a lot with a trailer for Birdman, with that great cover of Don't Let Me Be Misunderstood, Mm. or the trailer for Boyhood, um, and again, the trailer for Cake. Now, none of those movies have anything to do with human trafficking. None of those movies have a whole lot to do um, with adultery. None of them have things to do with strip clubs. But all of them put me in different emotional places that helped me when I was envisioning Alexandra and Richard and Kristen's world because of the way the music and the images would emotionally ground me. Wow. So, like, you may have just converted me to doing this. That's really fascinating. <laughs> oh, and it's so much fun. So, you you talked about uh, by the fifth novel, by, by uh, Midwives, that you were pretty much self-sufficient uh, as a writer, uh, either writing books or journalism. Uh, at one point, you left the city and moved to Vermont, where you wrote, and I don't know if you still do, for the Burlington Free Press. Um, was, is that the time in your life where you realized that I could, I can make a living out of this. I don't have to be, uh, you know, I don't have to work full time at an ad agency. It was all part of the, part of the process. Yeah, I wrote for the Burlington Free Press, a column called Idle Banter, I-D-Y-L-L. And I wrote that column for 23 and one half years, mm. every single Sunday, but three. I only stopped on September 6, 2015, because it really had been 23 and a half years, and I didn't want to subject my readers to a 24th Mother's Day column. Um, 812,000 words, or another eight novels. It helped me enormously as a novelist, and I'm so grateful always to the Burlington Free Press, because every week you need to write 19 column inches that are authentic, moving and perhaps have something to say was a great asset to a novelist. It forced me to always remember you can't waste 50 words describing a sneeze. 
it reminded me of the importance of research, talking to people, getting the quotes, getting it right. I, that was such a great gift, that column. Now, I could never have made a living on that column alone. I was doing a lot of journalism as well for magazines, for Cosmopolitan, for the Boston Globe Sunday Magazine, for Reader's Digest. In my early 30s, I was one of those writers who was doing the dramas in real life for Reader's Digest, which meant that every other month I would be, say, in San Diego or Charleston, writing a, writing a story about the guy who was impaled on three rebar spikes for six hours and lived. Oh, my gosh. Wow. Quite, quite an adventure. When did you switch to um, primarily writing novels and sort of let the journalism go? I only let the journalism go because the book tours began. Mm. And I still continued with the column. I was always doing the journalism to make sure that my wife and, you know, infant daughter had health insurance, that I could pay my monthly health insurance premiums and the mortgage on my house. The goal always was to become sufficiently um, well off that I could just write novels. And now you're there. Now I'm there. <laughs> so um, what themes do you find yourself coming back to again and again in your in your books? Is there some thread that runs through them all and connects them all? There is. There is. You know, my, my goal, first of all, is never to write the same book twice. But I think that whether it's historical fiction, such as Skeletons at the Feast, or The Light in the Ruins, or The Sandcastle Girls, or literary fiction, contemporary literary fiction, such as The Guest Room, or Midwives, or The Double Bind, I think there are two threads. The first is dread. When my books work, I believe what keeps readers turning the pages is dread. Mm. That razor-thin line between heartbreak and hope. What is going to greet you at the end? The other thread, my daughter, when she read Close Your Eyes, Hold Hands in a rough draft, said to me, Dad, take this as a compliment because I mean it that way. But I think your sweet spot as a writer is seriously messed up young women. <laughs> And she's right. If you look at all my books, think of the women, Laurel Estabrook, spiraling into madness after a cataclysmic sexual assault, Katie Hayward in Secrets of Eden, the daughter of a domestic abuse murder-suicide, Serafina Bettini in The Light in the Ruins, a partisan disfigured in a firefight with the Nazis who's now a burner, which is a cutter with flame, and most recently... Alexandra in the guest room, a brilliant, beautiful, courageous, smart young woman who essentially spends five years in captivity as a sex slave. So you talked about your next novel, the novel you're working on now. Um, who is the girl or woman in this one? Can you talk about it? Kind of a little bit. Um, there are two. They're sisters. Liana. And Paige, in the autumn, in the, in the late summer and autumn of the year 2000, their mother, who has a very rare form of parasomnia, sleepwalks into oblivion. And now, um, Liana, who's nearing 40, begins to wonder and understand 
some of the genetic predispositions that link the women in this family and has to begin to unravel her mother's strange disappearance a century, a, a generation earlier. Well, that sounds pretty intense and definitely like something that uh, will continue appealing to those same readers who come back to your books again and again. I hope so. I, I hope so. I don't, I don't ever want to disappoint my readers. We've been talking with Chris Bojelian, and you can find his book, The Guest Room, in stores right now. Chris, thank you so much for taking the time to join us. Your questions were awesome. I had way too much fun. Thank you. <laughs> I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella, and this is Publishers Weekly Radio. Next up, Natasha Gilmore, PW's Associate Editor for Children's Books, brings us a hint of springtime. Stay tuned. I'm Tim Dorsey, author of Coconut Cowboy, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. I'm Mark Rotella. And I'm Rose Fox, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio, direct from the PW offices in New York City. Every week, we get insider info from Publishers Weekly editors and contributors. And today, Natasha Gilmore, PW's associate editor for children's books, is here to tell us all about big children's books for spring. Hello, Natasha. Hello, how's it going? Hi. Good, so good. we got our spring announcements out of the way a couple weeks ago. Yeah. Um, actually, longer longer than that now. I feel it's like, yeah, like it's a, a, a month. month ago. Uh-huh. <laughs> so how come you guys get all this extra time? Well, it's a much bigger issue. In fact, it's probably, the, I think... Our managing editor said it's the biggest issue he's ever worked on in his tenure here. Wow. 100 some odd pages. Um, our The children's side of things does it much differently from the grown-up side um, because we actually list pretty extensively like most of the books that are coming out. You know, obviously mm. we curate some. There's some things that we kind of put on the web only um, and don't print. And we also don't print things like novelty books and sticker and activity books. But we do try to like kind of give a lot of small and big presses a fair shake and kind of show like a huge amount of what's going out. Um, it's not like, you know, on the grown up side where we have like this kind of curated list of like, these are the big ones you should be paying attention to. It's kind of, we try to be pretty inclusive. Right. So, so wow. And children's books covers everything from board and cloth books up to young adult novels. So yeah. there's a lot. Yes. There's a quite. lot. Big industry. <laughs> um, so, and I'm, I'm looking at the, that book of an issue you've yes, got the war in front and of you. peace of announcements <laughs> issues. That's very very impressive yeah um, so tell us a little bit about the some of the highlights um well for me one of the best parts is the cover because uh it's zachariah ahora who's this children's book illustrator he did this book wolfie the bunny a couple years ago mm. and he's got a book coming out this spring called horrible bear he is the illustrator um amy dykeman is the author um and he's done his own books too and i he's a personal favorite illustrator of mine so getting him to do the cover was like a huge squee moment for me um and it's really really sweet and really cute so i love the cover um and that was really fun that he was game to do that describe to us the color describe to our listeners the cover oh my gosh it's um i don't know what they're called when i was a kid we called it an igloo but there's like this playground toy that's like a big jungle gym in a sphere that's right exactly yeah Yeah. Yeah. um and so it's a bunch of his little cute uh characters kind of i'm not i mean not characters from his books just like characters that he draws um playing all around it and lots of mushrooms and birch trees and growing things for spring and my favorite favorite part and this is why ahora is such a great illustrator because there's always these little details um there's a little otter here and he's got a book and it's got the ouroboros on it it's like so random like what book is that kid reading i don't know I, i love it it's just so so fun and playful and great and so that's that was my one of my favorite parts um 
So the announcements issue has like gobs and gobs of listings, as I was mentioning before, but we also do a bunch of features related to children's books. Um, and so we've got three big ones in this issue, uh, a piece on booksellers and how mm -hmm. they can hand sell diverse books and sort of the challenges that kind of come up with that. You know, obviously diversity is becoming a really big thing that um, publishers and booksellers and librarians are all thinking about. And so we tried to put together this feature that gives booksellers on the ground sort of like tips from fellow booksellers on what works for them and how they can kind of talk about diversity and, and right. especially in communities that are more homogenous, you know, sometimes, you know, if you, you know, you want to have diverse books in your bookstore, but if you don't have the community or people aren't buying them, they have to kind of have a case made for them. And so we talk to booksellers about how they kind of overcome those sorts of challenges. And, and can, I mean, that's, that's very interesting. And, and how, how do they? Um, I think a lot of people said a lot of really interesting things, but I think one of my favorites, um, you know, Elizabeth Bloomley, one of our um, bloggers mm -hmm. too, and she's also a children's book mm -hmm. author and she um, runs Flying Pig uh, Bookstore. She just said some really interesting things about like kind of not, you know, a number one, like kind of stocking books that you care about and um, where like the diverse element is sort of incidental and not really talking about it as like, oh, this book that you should read because this character is from whatever background, but more like this book is amazing. It's about this kid who does X, Y, or Z and, you know, like kind of hand selling a book for like its content and not, you know, what box it checks, if that makes sense. Yeah, right. definitely. And this is especially timely with the Lee and Lowe survey just, yeah, so just, just released. Mm -hmm. uh, so it's, uh, it's great to see that people are making this kind of effort. And yeah, yeah. And like an actual effort, not just like sort of talking about it, but actually like, you know, like, I, I think that's why it's really great to kind of talk to booksellers about this sort of thing, because they're the ones who are at the front lines, and they're the ones actually doing this work and, and you know, can actually help those numbers so that it can kind of trickle up and mm -hmm. maybe make the publishers make more books too. <laughs> that would be great. Um, and then another feature that I was really excited about um, is we talked to Sherman Alexi. He hasn't done a children's book since 2007 when he did the absolutely true diary of a part-time Indian, which won the national book award for children's books that year. Um, so he's got a children's book coming out this spring. It's a picture book um, illustrated by Juju Morales, and it's adorable, and it's really great. And he's one of my favorites. I love his grown-up books and his children book, children's books. So that was really great to kind of have a, a piece about him in that book. So, And what is that book about? Um, it's a picture book about a kid who, um, he's Native American, and he you know, has his, like, the name that he was given, which is Thunderboy Jr., and he doesn't really like it. So it's kind of about him coming up with his own sort of name and his own identity and like wanting to be like his dad but also his own sort of person and it's just really fun and playful and it's totally got Sherman Alexi's sense of humor throughout it and these really adorable illustrations and so it's, it's just a really playful and fun one kind of about identity and, and also family um, right. so it's a really really good book sounds great yeah. and um, are there any particular books that you want to highlight that are coming out in the spring and oh summer oh my gosh there's so many I like, know there's a lot it's hard to pick favorites yeah um, there are uh, a couple of really big ones that other people are buzzing about that um, I haven't gotten to yet because you know I'm still reading books and that are going to be published in March but um, right. Ramey Nightingale's the big Kate to Camillo book that's coming out that one's a big one um, and John Corey Whaley uh, who wrote uh, I mean, he wrote Noggin, which um, got a National Book Award shortlist. He was like nominated for that one a couple of years ago. Um, he's great. And he's got this book called Highly Illogical Behavior coming out that I think is going to be really good. Um, Maggie Stiefvater has the f conclusion of her Raven King series, which a lot of people are frothing at the bit for. Um, and then, of course, I'm like really excited for Zachary O'Hara and Amy Dykeman's picture book, Horrible Bear. It's really, mm -hmm. really cute. Um, 
Yeah, and uh, there's another one that, like, kind of a personal one that I'm really excited about is um, Saving Montgomery Soul by Jill- uh, Meraki- Mariko Tamaki. Sorry. Um, it's a kind of a YA novel about this girl who um, starts this, like, mystery club is what she calls it, but it's about, like, you know, like, paranormal stuff. And mm-hmm. I don't know, it's just really sweet and very, like, I don't know, just a great book. So I'm excited for that one to come out. So it sounds like there's a whole range of interesting stuff coming yeah, out. This yeah, yeah. Like there's a really cool like YA that's sort of unique and unlike things that have been done before. And then there's just like really playful picture books. Um, and then like Peter Brown is doing um, his first middle grade book. He did um, Mr. Tiger Goes Wild. Those those picture books. So he's doing his first middle grade uh, novel about a robot who lands on an island. Um, so I don't know. Yeah, there's just like a really crazy, interesting mix of books coming out. Um, so I think, yeah, I'm excited for a lot of them. Fun. And are, are you seeing any particular trends in what's coming out? I know that's always the question. And sometimes well, the answer is yes, and sometimes it's no. It's really funny. Like, you know, we proofread these listings so I've read these like you know whatever hundred pages like a thousand times and <laughs> you start to see the weirdest patterns and you don't know if it's just your it's mind like 16 <laughs> books about penguins seriously I don't understand it. so I mean they're not like a really unique animal but for some reason there just seem to be gobs of bear books this spring huh. okay I saw lots and lots and there are a couple of them in the spot art for our announcements so <laughs> um, that was sort of random I also saw um, and I don't know if this is really like a trend or what like it just sort of struck me as sort of unusual there were a lot of like dad books like Hmm. especially picture books where um it's about like the kid and and her or his dad and then there's even a book by avi um that's a collection of short stories about fathers and stepfathers and and so that just sort of struck me as kind of strange that um just i hadn't seen quite so many all in you know one season um trying to think of any other so wait i'm I'm interested in that because i don't know a lot about children's literature Mm -hmm. is is it mostly moms is it mostly kids without parents in the picture what what Uh, makes the dad books stand out yeah i think it it is oftentimes moms or sometimes it's not super um obvious you know like i think of like you know guess how much i love you where you know like they might be gendered but it's not really explicit or super clear i feel um and then obviously like as the books go into like chapter books and and for middle grade and, and young adult the parents are often you know mia because mm-hmm. what right. fun can you have with mom and dad around right right, so. right yeah <laughs> <laughs> so yeah i feel like um you know obviously there are, are plenty of books usually that that have dad characters but i just felt like there was sort of a critical mass this time around there just seemed to be lots and lots that were like sort of front and center with and it was kind of about the relationship between a father and the child right. so interesting yeah and what about themes in YA? Um, you know, I didn't really, that thing really sort of struck me, you know, like there have definitely in years past been really obvious like trends and themes. Um, and even last year, I felt like when I went through these, um, I could see a few things sort of emerge, but this year, nothing really stood mm. out. Um, I think just really original writing seems to be kind mm. of like happening. And, right. you know, I think maybe because publishers are able to publish a little bit more because it's been doing so well, there are just like some really unique voices um, and a lot of kind of like unique narratives like with um like linked stories or alternating perspectives that kind of stuff um and then just things where that they're a little bit more experimental um which you don't usually see in YA um so so publishers are really trusting kids to be able to handle that yeah I mean yeah I think that's definitely bearing out especially in the books that like they kind of get behind um and and really sort of push more um yeah that some of the books are just a little bit more challenging maybe or um just I don't know just kind of yeah different from from before. Hmm. 
Yeah, that's interesting. Well, it's great that the industry is doing so well that publishers can start taking some chances. Yeah. That's not a thing we've seen a lot of in the past decade or so. Yeah, yeah. A lot of, and I think still you still have to kind of go with what works, but it, it seems like it's kind of finally hit a point where, you know, unique books are doing really well and, and people are also calling for diversity too. Like I think mm-hmm. wanting to see some new voices and new kinds of ideas. Um, and that's finally like getting getting some play, which is really exciting. Right. That's great. Yeah. So it sounds like uh, there's a lot of stuff coming out, and uh, the issue itself will give you a hernia if you pick it up. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Sit down first. <laughs> Sit down first. Um, but, uh, but there's a ton of stuff there. Is it all on our website, too? Yes. Um, on the website, too, there's even more, because, you know, obviously with in print, we can only get so much. Um, so, yeah, on our website, we've got all of the features and all of the listings. The listings we've even had to break up mm-hmm. on pages. So there's four pages, um, four web pages of, of the listings. And the best part of all that is on the web only and not in the print issue is the fall sneak previews, where we show books that are coming out this oh, wow. fall. Um, and there are some really cool ones and some really big books. So um, that's really cool to kind of get a jump on like what's going to be big in the right. fall. So. Oh my gosh, that's like an entire year away. Yeah, I know, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And I'd also like to, if we can, just move on just a little bit to uh, touch on the Caldecott yeah. and the Newberry. Yes. The two big, big awards, you know, the right. Oscars, the EGOTs of the, the children's right. 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 Yeah. Um, the ALA Youth Media Awards were uh, very recently in Boston, and the two big awards were announced. Um, the Newberry went to Matt De La Pena for his um, picture book, Last Stop on Market Street, which is super rare, A number one for a picture book to win. The last time that that happened was in like 1982. It was, wow. um, yeah, it just, it's really rare. It's usually goes to middle grade novels. Um, right. but technically the award can be, you know, it can give, be given to a book, you know, with it's a text. So, so that was, um, a big win. And then also, uh, it was the first time that a Latino had ever won the award. Really? Yeah. Um, but the book wow. is amazing and it's so sweet and so he's good. a wonderful writer. Yeah. Yeah. His, um, I mean, we've read his YA before too, and he's, he's great. So it's a really, really cool win. And then also, you know, on the art side, cause the, when the Newberry committee decides they're making a decision explicitly on the text, they don't look at the illustrators or not or illustrations are not supposed to take those into account. Um, but the, uh, illustrator Christian Robinson was also awarded a Caldecott honor. So the mm. book got a Newberry and a Caldecott honor. So that's wow. kind of a big... That's pretty big. Yeah. That must yeah. be the first time that that's happened. It's not the first time. Um, in fact, the book that won the Newberry, the last picture book that won um, in 1982, also the same thing happened with that mm. one. Um, so yeah, that might be the only two times that's ever right. happened. Wow. Um, yeah. And then um, the actual winner of the Caldecott... Uh, was Finding Winnie, or Sophie Blackall for Finding Winnie, the story of the world's most famous bear, which is a picture book uh, about Winnie the Pooh, the actual bear. Right. <laughs> so yeah, that one is really, uh, really cute book. And she's a really great illustrator. She's made like a quadrillion books. So it's good to see her get an award. <laughs> oh, sure. And thus the bear thing. And so many bears, so see? Many bears. Like you, that one won. So now it's going to be all bears all right. next year. <laughs> well, I'm looking forward to a book called Bears, Bears Everywhere by oh, Natasha Gilmore. Oh, that's happening. <laughs> uh, yeah, maybe like you could have a bunch of different animals dressing up like bears. I think this could work. Yeah. Okay, I'll get yeah. I'll get cracking. <laughs> well, Natasha, thank you so much for yeah, coming on the show. We don't me. we don't want to keep you from going off and creating your bestseller. Yes, there. right. Your your bear seller. <laughs> oh, that was unbearable. <laughs> Forget I said anything. All right, oh, thank nice. you. Thank you so much for the sake of our listeners. We're going to wrap this up. <laughs> thank you. It was great to have you on the show. Yeah, thanks so thanks much. Thanks for having me. And now a final word from our sponsors. 
Hi, I'm Tom Hart, the creator of the book Rosalie Lightning, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. And that's it for today's show. I'm Mark Rotella. And I'm Rose Fox, and you've been listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. Join us next week for an interview with Francis Morale, author of Love and Lowercase. We'll also have lots more juicy insider info on best-selling books and the nuts and bolts of publishing. In the meantime, you can listen to this and every episode of Publishers Weekly Radio absolutely free at publishersweekly.com slash pwradio. Subscribe to our podcasts on iHeartRadio and iTunes and hear every new episode streamed live on audiobookradio.net. Check those sites every week for a brand new episode giving you the inside story on your favorite story. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to Publishers Weekly Radio Show. 